Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you today as we kind of wrap up this worship series simply called ACT, where we've been trying to discover how the power of the Holy Spirit is guiding and encouraging not only that early church, uh, but us in particular, and how it is we can discover uh, from that early church the ways in which the Holy Spirit just gives us strength and encouragement and power to do amazing things. From Pentecost uh, to the early church to the Antiochian church and now even to what we will refer to as the Jerusalem Council, this meeting that the early church had to try to decide how do we move forward and what does this look like and the ways in which we're going to try to make that happen, right? And all of this is by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you, but I, I think we could use a little bit more of the Holy Spirit these days, right? I think we could find the strength and the uh, even provocation, I think, of the ways in which the Spirit helps us move because we're living in days that are full of discord, right, and dissent and all kinds of problems in our conversations, the way we relate, the way we connect, right? Uh, sometimes we find even in conversations about everyday things or things in the country or certainly things in our denomination where we don't know what to do because we've got these differences of opinion or we, we don't know how exactly we ought to move forward or talk about those things, right? And so part of what we need is the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit we've been discovering helped that early church so very much, and we need that desperately. So today we're going to move towards uh, the middle part of the book of uh, Acts, and we're going to see what's known as the Jerusalem Council, this first council, this first gathering of leaders of the church that made decisions for the church to help it uh, get off dead center and to move forward in a very positive way. And the Jerusalem Council offered us what I refer to as two hopes and those two hopes are very straightforward, very direct, very simple, and yet sometimes a little difficult to fully grasp hold of. Here are those two hopes that I want to spend some time in this morning. The first is the hope of reaching, and the second is the hope of resolving. Now, what do I mean by that, reaching and resolving? So in the early church, they were very unabashed and unashamed about the way in which they reached people for Jesus. They made no bones about it. They made no apologies about it. They, they did not get sidetracked by uh, sort of side issues, if you will, or, or how do we maintain this thing or how do we grow this thing. All they did was we want to reach people for Jesus. So that's what they're going to teach us today is how do we make that our focus again? How do we keep ourselves centered on reaching people for Jesus? But the second and equally more important that that Jerusalem Council did was they helped come to a resolution about all that. What I mean is that they were completely undeterred by anything that separated them. They were completely undeterred by anything that would cause dissension in that early church to reach people for Jesus. So I hope that together we're going to learn how do we do this? How do we keep focused reaching people for Jesus? And how do we resolve whatever differences we may have with regard to either how we do that or how it is we do church? together. So, it's an interesting thing that's going on. Remember, the church is beginning to flourish. And, and Peter, as you may remember from the day of Pentecost, has uh, spoken a powerful word. He's helped more than 3,000 people come to faith. And then Paul and Barnabas likewise begin to find great success in reaching people for Jesus. And they, at the Antiochian church and in other churches that Paul would establish, they begin to reach thousands upon thousands of people for Jesus' sake, right? 
And everybody gets a little excited about that because this is fun. It's fun when new people come to faith. It's fun when new people say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to love like Jesus, right? That's fun. Until we begin to realize that there's a whole bunch of new people here. And those new people, they don't do things the way we do things, and they don't look like we look, and they don't act like we act, and, and they don't have to do the same things that we had to do. And we get all flustered about that because we want people to do things the way we've always done them. You can come to faith in Jesus, and you can come to this church, and you can be a part of our group as long as, right? You ever heard that? In fact, I refer to that uh, often as the Back to Egypt Committee, like the Hebrews who wanted to go back to Egypt even though they were finding uh, uh, freedom in God, right? That back to Egypt committee is often also referred to as the, we've never done it that way before. You ever heard people say that? You ever encounter that in your own lives, right? I mean, we all do it to a certain degree. And that's what's going on is um, Paul and Barnabas have found great favor in reaching new people for Jesus. Peter has uh, had an amazing success rate in reaching people for Jesus, and some of the church begins to question how it is these Gentiles, these pagans, these people who don't believe like we believe, these, these people who don't have the same values as us, these, these people who have different cultural backgrounds than us, uh, we, we want them to do it the same way we have always done it, right? And so in the book of Acts, beginning in uh, chapter 15 in the fifth verse, some people begin to call into question the ways in which Barnabas and Paul and Peter have reached new people for Jesus. And this is the way it goes. Some believers from among the Pharisees, you know it had to be among the Pharisees, right, stood up and claimed, the Gentiles must be circumcised, they must be required to keep the law from Moses. Now, what's not said, what's not written here is, we had to, so they should. We've always done this, so they should. This is the way it's always been done, so surely they ought to do that, right? All of that is unspoken and unwritten, but that's what they say. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter because when somebody brings up an issue, we got to talk about it. We need to address it, right? And we want to try to resolve it. And so that's what they make an attempt to do. And verse 7, I love the way it starts, after much debate. Isn't that the nice Christian way to say, man, they went at it. They not only had words, but there's probably some cussing going on, and they may have even kind of stood up and pointed fingers at each other, and they may have called each other names, and they may have called each other out, and there might have even been fisticuffs. I don't know, but there was much debate in the conversation. Peter stood up and addressed them, fellow believers, you know that early on God chose me from among you as the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and come to believe. Now, Peter's awful proud of himself, wouldn't you say? I mean, if you were to read a couple of Paul's letters, Paul would say the same thing. I'm the one sent to the Gentiles, but here Peter's talking, so he's going to be the one who's called to the Gentiles, right? He's just letting them know who he is and what he's been called to, right? So verse 8, God who knows people's deepest thoughts and desires confirmed this by giving them, meaning the Gentiles, giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did us. Now, I don't doubt for a second, somebody in that church at that meeting, that Jerusalem council, thought to themselves, may have even said it out loud, 
You mean the Gentiles got the Holy Spirit? You mean they get to know Jesus like we do? You mean they received everything that God had for us? Can you imagine if anybody would have spoken that out loud? No, I'm sure they didn't speak it out loud. I'm sure they thought it, though, in their hearts, because we've all done that at some point, right? You mean they get to be a part of this like me? You mean those people? Those people? Isn't it interesting what happens when we read Scripture? God gave them the Holy Spirit just as He did us. Verse 9, He made no distinction between us and them, but purified their deepest thoughts and desires through faith. Why then are you now challenging God by placing a burden on the shoulders of these disciples that neither we nor our ancestors could bear? Man, Peter's speaking the truth here. We couldn't follow those laws very well. We didn't do a very good job of being faithful Jews. Why in the world would we put this on them? It's a pretty valid question, wouldn't you say? On the contrary, Peter says, we believe that we and they are saved in the same way by the grace of God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these are Daniel's words, but not Scripture. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that they, those heathens, those pagans, those believers, those illiterates, whatever word you want, of, those people are saved the same way we are. They receive the Holy Spirit the same way we do. They receive the benefit of the richness of God's grace in the same way we do. And Peter says all that in response to the question, those Gentiles need to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. Really wasn't a question, was it? It was a statement. It was a statement of bold fact according to the Pharisee who stood up and spoke it. And he's speaking a truth that has been the truth in the Jewish tradition at that point for 2,000 years. 2,000. 2,000. Not a small sum, big sum, right? 2,000 years. When you and I talk in reference of 2,000 years, we talk in reference to the time Jesus walked the face of the earth until now. This 2,000 years that they're referencing is the 2,000 years before Jesus existed because of the covenant between Abraham and God that was written and spoken of in Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis chapter 17, God enters into a covenant with uh, Abraham and quite literally says, now this is the covenant that I will establish with you and your descendants. All men should be circumcised. And this will be the sign of the covenant, he would go on to say, Right? It's been a covenant in existence for 2,000 years. It's no small sum of a commitment. And the law of Moses has likewise been in existence and followed by every Jew for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so when they say, Peter and Paul and Barnabas, we're not going to make this so anymore. This isn't going to be the law of the land anymore. You're not going to have to be circumcised and follow the laws of Moses. 
you'd have thought the kingdom came. You'd have thought the world had fallen apart. You'd have thought they were changing all the rules. It would not be too dissimilar from us saying today, baptism's irrelevant. You don't need to do that. It's not a part of this, not a part of us. You don't need to do that anymore. Would that not rock our boat? It might be akin to saying, it's not really about Jesus. We don't need to know Jesus. Would that rock your boat? It would, wouldn't it? That's what they're saying. When the Pharisees get up and say they must do this, and the rest of the council eventually comes to the conclusion, no, you don't need to be circumcised, and no, you don't have to follow the law of Moses. You simply need to accept the grace and mercy of God found in and through Jesus. You talk about centrally focused on reaching people for Jesus, it doesn't get any more focused than that. Because uh, Peter would basically say, these are my words, not his, um, why put a burden, why put a, a, a barrier, why put a wall, why put a hurdle in front of people if they want to know Jesus? It would be like saying, Jesus loves you, but not yet. It would be like saying, Jesus wants a relationship with you, but you can't get there yet. It would be like saying, Jesus wants everything about you to know. He loves everything about you. Oh, but by the way, you see, he's, he, the Pharisee doesn't get it. It's why the council is called here in chapter 15, and they need to make a decision that will help the church remain focused on reaching people for Jesus. Peter had already said this. Not only did he say it right here in, in chapter 15, the, the, the Holy Spirit fell on them just like us. They are saved just like us. They receive salvation in the same way that we do. In Acts chapter 11, just a, a few chapters before, Peter has had this vision in chapter 10. He expresses it and acknowledges that the Gentiles ought to receive salvation and we ought to go to them. And he literally says in chapter 11, and since God gave them, meaning the Gentiles, and since God gave them the same gift he gave us, meaning salvation, who was I to stand in God's way and hinder them from receiving salvation. Man, Peter is all over because Peter knows that the central focus of the church is to reach people for Jesus and to remove as many barriers as possible and to make it as simple and as straightforward as it possibly can be. You too can know Jesus. You too can be saved by faith in Christ. You too can have the mercy of Christ in your life and know barriers to hinder. But the church had to come to that decision because for centuries there had been some requirements. When I reflect on our church today, not just this church, but Christianity and the big C church and the United Methodist denomination and all of those who claim faith in Christ, when I talk about the church, this is what I mean. We've got to stop creating litmus tests and setting barriers for people to come to faith. Now, you think to yourself, well, what do you mean, Daniel? I mean, not, what, what barrier is I mean, what hindrance is there? Well, it, it might go something like this. If you don't believe the way I believe about guns, abortion, immigration, homosexuality, education, 
climate change. If you don't agree with me, then you can't be a Christian. Now, very few of us ever say those words out loud, but we intimate them and we perpetuate them on all kinds of levels. If you don't believe the way I believe, then you can't really be a follower of Jesus. We got to stop that, friends. We've got to stop with words or phrases or even thoughts that go something like this. If you don't belong to my political party, you're not a Christian. If you don't watch the same news sources as I do, you're not a Christian. Friends, that's hogwash. Hogwash. You see, people can be of any political persuasion or watch any news source or be a part of any affiliation if they believe in Jesus because it's the belief in Christ and the salvation that we receive that is the critical mass. And the early church made that decision for us because they were so centrally focused on reaching people for Jesus. And that ought to be our goal as well. Now, it doesn't mean we can't have our opinion, right? It doesn't mean we can't have a stance on these issues. We ought to. But we also ought to know that it's not critical to our faith the way our stance may come out. Because Jesus loves all people. And Jesus wants a relationship with all people. And we as the church need to tear down any boundaries and any barriers and any walls that may hinder somebody who may want to know Jesus. I'm so grateful that this Jerusalem council not only met, but made this decision. Now, how did they get there? They got there because they had a focus, number one, and number two, they knew how to resolve their differences. They knew how to resolve what it was that God was calling them to and while we didn't read all of chapter 15, I want to encourage you to go home and read the rest of chapter 15 because it, it expresses this very well. But I'm going to enumerate sort of four ways that I believe they lived into resolving whatever differences they may have had because, as you can well imagine, there was everything from you must be circumcised and follow the law to you don't need to do any of that. You just need to profess faith in Jesus and everything in between. That's what verse 7 meant. And there was much debate because there was. And here's how they came to resolution. The first, it's there in your notes if you're taking notes or in the app, the first is that they realize that revelation is still alive. All I mean by that is God is still revealing. God is still at work in the world. And they realized this not only because of Pentecost and how the Spirit came to be, but because they'd already begun to witness God is revealing to those Gentiles that they can be loved and forgiven and set free. God is revealing to the world that there are opportunities and possibilities, that God is love and that you can experience that love. God is still revealing. And all that simply means is, man, we can learn some new stuff every once in a while. We can encounter God in ways that we may have never encountered God before. God is still revealing. My goodness, friends, how would, how would the Reformation have taken shape if God wasn't still revealing? How would the Great Awakening, a part of which was the, the Methodist strain, how would that have taken place if God's not still revealing? How would the holiness movement of the early 20th century have ever taken shape had God not still been revealing, you see? God is still making God's self known every single day. God is still working in new and different ways every single day. And so part of what the Jerusalem Council realized was 
man, the Holy Spirit can work, and the Holy Spirit is working, and the Holy Spirit is revealing God's ways even to this day. That's what Peter meant when he said the Holy Spirit was revealed to them. They got the same gift. How then could I stand in God's way? Centuries before Jesus even walked the face of this earth, the prophet Jeremiah understood this. When in chapter 31, Jeremiah said, the days are surely coming, right? Something's out there. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the household of Judah and Israel. That new covenant would become Jesus. It would be written on our hearts, not written in stone. It would be written in our lives, not in any concrete. It would be written in such a way that God would still be revealed. And we've got to understand that before we can move forward. Pentecost and the early church demonstrated without a shadow of a doubt that God is still being revealed. And thanks be to God that that's true. The second way that the Jerusalem Council really sort of moved towards resolution was that they realized and acknowledged that experience is real. Your experience in Jesus, the way the Holy Spirit moves in your life, the way God is moving and working in the world, that experience is real. So that no matter how or where or when you experience Jesus, it's real. It's valid. It's valuable. Everybody's experience is different. This was a huge bedrock of, the, of, of John Wesley when he would under, help us to better understand how to be faithful, that each one of our experiences of the Holy Spirit is different. You remember Saul had that Damascus Road experience, the lightning, you know, and blinds him. And we're told in Acts chapter 9 that uh, in verse 9, he's literally blinded or sightless for three days, and he doesn't eat or drink for three days. Um, uh, has anybody here had that experience? Well, does that invalidate your experience of Jesus? That you didn't have that same experience? No, it doesn't. It simply points out that we each encounter Jesus differently. We each encounter and receive the Holy Spirit differently. And a part of what the Jerusalem Council realized was, oh, those Gentiles, those people who are different from us, those people who look and act and believe different, they can receive the Holy Spirit too. And that experience is valid and valuable, and we need to authenticate it by acknowledging you're a follower of Jesus, and we love you just like God does. What a powerful gift that is. When we realize God is still revealing and when we know that each person's experience is different, we can begin to find some common ground. Now, the third way they came to resolution is this, Scripture confirms. What we didn't read but takes place several verses later in chapter 15 is James, the brother of Jesus, stands up. So now you know the bigwigs are all there, right? Peter's there, Paul is there, Barnabas is there, Jesus, uh, James, the brother of Jesus is there. Man, this is a hopping meeting, right? I mean, there are some powerful decisions to be made. And James stands up and says, I believe, and he quotes from Amos chapter 9. And he quotes the passage in Amos chapter 9 that identifies that the Gentiles will be reached by God. And so he confirms this by simply referring to Scripture and acknowledging that there's something valuable about what God has already said about the ways in which the Gentiles can be reached. And then he goes on to establish four criteria. We won't go into that, but they're going to write a letter, they're going to send it out to the churches, and they're going to say, we really want everybody to abide by four simple things, and those four simple things are behaviors 
that are required after one receives faith in Jesus. That's the whole point. And it would be based in Scripture as well. One of them, not all of them, but one of them is referenced in Leviticus chapter 17, where it says there that I will be, meaning God, I will be against the citizens both of Israel and the foreigners for those who eat food with blood. Basically, the law was saying there are certain criteria that not only Jews have to abide by, but the foreigners in the land. And so part of James's wisdom is to go back to Scripture and say, golly, there's a few things we all need to abide by, and, and one of those would be that we honor one another and that we honor God and that we honor the animals in our kingdom, right? When we confirm God's Word by what Scripture says, it helps guide who we are. Now, we don't use this as a weapon to confirm. We use it for wisdom and faith to acknowledge the two commandments that Jesus wrapped it all up in, right? Love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Those are the two great commandments. They summarize everything that God has written and everything that's been presented. And so we always need to confirm. And a part of what that says, friends, is that we need to commit ourselves to be in God's Word on a regular and consistent basis so that we know that God is still revealing, so that we recognize that experience is different, and so that we can confirm it by what God has presented. Now, the last thing that they did, and this is very important, is that they recognized to resolve their issues that the Holy Spirit convicts. That's what the Spirit did that day. The whole book of Acts is leading up to this and pointing out that the Holy Spirit is at work, that the Holy Spirit empowers, and that the Holy Spirit gives us capacity beyond our understanding. And right now, the Holy Spirit convicts them, let's not put barriers up. Let's not make this too difficult for people to accept Jesus. Let's rather sort of open up the floodgates. And so again, when you read further into the book, uh, uh, the 15th chapter here from which we read, you see that in verse 28 it says, the Holy Spirit led us to this decision to send you this letter and acknowledge this is what we're going to ask of you. You don't have to be circumcised anymore. You don't have to follow the law of Moses. You simply have to receive faith in Jesus and follow these four simple rules. And what a difference that made. They came to a resolution in the early church that anybody, everybody could receive faith in Christ. If only they'll ask and affirm that, and it becomes a powerful lesson for us today. How can we be focused, friends? on reaching people for Jesus? And how, in the midst of that, can we resolve anything that separates us or disconnects us or keeps us from that one goal? I bet if we'll rely on the Holy Spirit, if we'll keep ourselves in God's Word, if we'll realize that people can come to faith in all different kinds of ways and in all different kinds of places, and if we'll acknowledge God is still at work in the world, across the globe, it will help us, Lord, friends. Can we make that commitment? Can we act like the early church, focusing on reaching and resolving our conflicts in biblical ways so that we can be people of faith and so that we can be the church 
that God desires for us to be. Because when we're not, not only does the church lose, but God loses and the kingdom loses. And I don't want to be a part of that. I bet you don't either. Let's reach, let's resolve, and let's do God's good work this day and the next. Will you pray with me? Holy and loving God, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for the gift he offers of life eternal and life abundant. And thank you, God, this day in particular for your Holy Spirit that continues to reveal to us and convict us of how it is we can welcome people into your kingdom and how we can teach them about your love. Help us, God, to reach and to resolve in the way that honors you. In the name of Jesus, we now pray. Amen. Hey, friends, my great gratitude goes to you for week in and week out. Your generosity makes ministry possible. That story you saw about the the children at Vacation Bible School is just one of a myriad of ways that your generosity helps impact lives and helps people to know that Jesus does indeed love them. So thank you for that. If you brought a gift this morning, you can drop it in the brown boxes that are at the white post right outside the door, or you can scan the QR code that's on the screen, literally right here on your phone, or you can text the letters T-M-U-M-C to the number 45777. Your generosity makes all the difference in building God's kingdom.